Greetings, and welcome to the Thirsty Mage, a podcast devoted to playing and discussing the best RPGs ever made. I am your host David Lloyd, and tonight I may be alone, but that's still no reason not to enjoy a pint. So tonight I'm working on a spicy double amber from the Quebec brewery Mons. The brewmaster was born in Belgium, where he learned the art of making Abbey beer, and is now making award-winning beer in northwestern Quebec. But getting back to video games, after several episodes focusing on JRPGs, It feels like a great time to change gears and take a look at one of my favorite Western developers, Bethesda. This episode, I'm going to discuss the history of the Elder Scrolls franchise, starting with the first title in the saga named Arena. So way back in 1994, the birth of the Elder Scrolls series began with the release of Arena. The initial release came on 8 floppy disks and was an MS-DOS based game. Three individuals were credited with the majority of the work in its creation, and they were VJ Lakshman, Ted Peterson, and Julian Lefay. All were longtime pen and paper role players, and were also fans of the Looking Glass Ultima Underworld series. Ultima Underworld were CRPGs released for the MS-DOS, which were the main inspiration for the trio. Arena started off as a much different game than its final product, as told by Ted Peterson in an interview. The initial idea for Arena was that there would be a series of tournaments where your character fought in a team to win a coveted title. A story then developed that there was an evil wizard named Yagratharn, who you could only fight once you made it to the final tournament in the Imperial City. Along the way, you could do side quests, which were more role-playing in nature. Eventually, during the development, the tournaments became less important and the side quests were becoming more fun. Eventually, we decided to drop the whole tournament idea altogether and just focused on the quests and the dungeon delving. In this first title, Tamriel is introduced. This is during the time of the 389th year of the Third Era. The Emperor was Ural Septim VII. The story revolves around the usurping of his throne by the Imperial Battle Mage, Jaeger Tharn. In this story, Tharn banishes the Emperor to another dimension, and it's up to the player to find the fragments of the Staff of Chaos, which holds the life force of the Imperial Battle Mage. In the end, the player reassembles the Staff, and in a final battle with Tharn, the player destroys the Battle Mage, which brings back the Emperor from his dimensional banishment. Going back to 1994, much of the groundwork for modern Elder Scrolls was laid. In this original game, a map shows the eight provinces of Tamriel, with some familiar sounding places if you've only come into the series lately. Even the races that spawn across the series first make their appearance here. The Khajiit, Bretons, Elves, and Nords all appear in great detail in the instruction manual. Starting up the game will look familiar if you've ever played any of the Elder Scrolls games. You choose your race, apply small bonuses to attributes, and have the choice of a few different head options. Gameplay is in first person, and the mouse is used to attack. It looks about what you would expect for a game that was made back in 1994. Think like original Doom as a comparison. Arena was meant to be released in December of 1993. However, the game wasn't ready in time, and was released a few months later in March of 1994. Only 3,000 units were initially shipped, leaving many to wonder if the company would go bankrupt. However, after a few months, word of mouth led to additional sales, and it eventually turned into a cult hit. 
So the game did well, won awards for best RPG of 1994. So what ended up happening with the development team? Well, VJ ended up leaving Bethesda in 1994 and went on to run Looking Glass Technologies. If that name sounds familiar, that's because it's the company that made Ultima Underworld, which was the initial inspiration for Arena. After spending a few years there, he moved on to other several game companies, making mostly MMOs during the early 2000s, and now runs a company called Mythborn Media, which assists writers of the sci-fi and fantasy genres develop their ideas. Ted Peterson and Julian Le Fay would remain on with Bethesda and work on the second installment of this Elder Scrolls series, Daggerfall. Development began right after the release of Arena, with Ted Peterson becoming the lead game designer and Julian Lefay assuming a directorial role. In Daggerfall, Ted and Julian wanted to take the story in a new direction. Instead of the player following a singular plotline, they preferred to create a game in which the player had absolute freedom in playing any way they chose. They also went into another direction for the setting. In Arena, you had total access to the entire kingdom of Tamriel. However, in Daggerfall, the focus was placed on a singular province in order to allow the player to learn the history and discover the character of High Rock. Don't let this focus fool you into thinking that the map was small though. To this day, the map of Daggerfall is still one of the largest ever made, and it's several times larger than the map of Skyrim. The plot behind Daggerfall is that after the events of Arena, the Emperor asks you to travel to the province of High Rock, where the King Lysandus has recently passed away, but continues to remain in the province as a ghost haunting his former lands. At the same time, you're to track down the whereabouts of a letter that the Emperor had sent to Daggerfall, de detailing a plan to find a necessary tool called the Mantella. The Mantella is used to complete the construction of the first Numidium, which is a powerful brass golem. One change from the original to the sequel brought in by Tom and Julian was a switch from linear level progression to more skill-based progression. Instead of all of your skills leveling up after defeating a certain amount of monsters, in Daggerfall, your skills progress based on the usage of them, something we are familiar with today in modern Elder Scrolls titles. Daggerfall has several endings depending on what you choose to do with the Mantella. Several warring factions are all trying to get their hands on it in order to control the Numidium, so essentially whatever mood you're in at the time will dictate how the story ends. This time around, Daggerfall was completed within its release window, going on sale in August of 1996. It was met with wide acclaim and won even more RPG awards than its predecessor. After production was finished, Ted Peterson left Bethesda, where after a few jobs he ended up with Activision in Los Angeles. A group of individuals at Activision were rumored to be leaving to start their own company, and thus Savage Entertainment LLC was created. Ted was then hired on there to be the lead designer and worked on such games as GoldenEye Rogue Agent, Star Wars Battlefront II, the 2005 PS2 title, and Scooby-Doo, Who's Watching Who, just to name a few. Lately, though, Ted Peterson's job as story editor for this final season of the TV show Bones. He also contributed to the Elder Scrolls strategy card game Legends, Heroes of Skyrim. Julian Lafay, however, would continue on with Bethesda for two more years, working on the 1997 title Battlespire, and then leaving the company in 1998. His employment after this time was mainly outside of the video game industry. Daggerfall will go on to see a pair of expansion games, starting with the aforementioned Battlespire.
Aspire was more focused on dungeon crawling and added a multiplayer feature. It was repackaged as a standalone game, which would be called Elder Scrolls Legend Battlespire. The story behind it was that the communication had been lost with the Imperial Battle College Elite Training Center, which was located inside the realm of Oblivion. The player is sent to Oblivion to investigate the situation, only to find themselves attacked by Daedra and the exit to Tamriel blocked. In the investigation, the player learns that Mayrun's Dagon was able to convince one of the mages to open a gateway to allow the invasion of Daedra. After a whole lot goes on, you eventually make it to Dagon himself, and after a final battle in which you cast him into the Void of Oblivion, you are able to make it back to Tamriel. The final Elder Scrolls released in the 1990s was the action RPG Redguard. This was a departure from the previous titles, as Red Guard featured third-person combat and a linear story in which the protagonist had a set race, name, and attributes. Red Guard follows the story of Cyrus, a young Red Guard who is searching for his lost sister. The story takes place about 400 years before Arena, at the time that Tiber Septim was beginning his conquest of Hammerfell. After the fall of Hammerfell, Septim leaves the province under the control of a group of madmen who are left to terrorize the provincials. During his search, Cyrus learns that the evil Daedra, Clavicus Vile, has claimed his sister's soul. Again, events happen in which Cyrus manages to retrieve his sister's soul and discovers a weapon that assists him in liberating his province from the Empire's control. So that about covers Elder Scrolls production during the 90s. By the year 2000, the main dudes that started the franchise had moved on to new jobs, and Bethesda was already hard at work on its next major installment, The Elder Scrolls Morrowind. Bethesda felt for the third chapter of the series they really needed to step up their game, and the man leading that charge is a name that Bethesda fans will immediately recognize, a Mr. Todd Howard. Todd Howard started with Bethesda back in 1994. He contributed to a number of games in his early days, including design work for Daggerfall. His first leading role was on the previously discussed Redguard. Todd was a project and design lead on that project. Redguard would prove to be the beginning of the Howard age at Bethesda, as he has been the game director and an executive producer on every major Bethesda game since 1998. That includes both the Elder Scroll and Fallout series. But getting back to Morrowind, Howard was tasked with overseeing a new direction for the Elder Scrolls series. Unlike the previous chapters where the world was procedurally generated, it was decided that the elements of Morrowind would be hand-designed. To accomplish this, Bethesda tripled their staff and created a brand new development team. The world of Morrowind would go on to require close to 100 man-years of development to create. Also worth mentioning at this time is that this was also the first Elder Scroll game to feature the incredible music of one Jeremy Soule. Like Todd Howard, Soule has been a staple of the Elder Scrolls franchise. He has composed the soundtrack for every Elder Scrolls chapter since Morrowind and is considered one of the best composers in the industry. Another landmark for the third chapter of Elder Scrolls was that the game would be developed not only for PC, but also for the original Xbox, marking the first time an Elder Scrolls game would be playable on a console. 
The project originally started in 1996, but was put on hold in 1997 while development of Battlespire and Redguard was being completed. In 1998, development restarted, though much of the previous work ended up being scrapped. The story of the third chapter of Elder Scrolls focuses on the deity, Dagoth Ur, with the events taking place on the island of Vardenval, which is in the Denmark-dominated province of Morrowind. The Emperor has tasked the player with travelling to the island to fulfil an ancient prophecy of becoming the reincarnation of a long-dead hero. As with all Elder Scroll games, there's a ton of lore and story going on, and eventually you get to the end and fight Dagothur. But there's a whole lot more going on in between. You can join guilds, talk to NBCs, you can loot and pillage to your heart's content. There's hundreds of hours of content available. It grows even more when you consider that Morrowind marks the beginning of the modding community. On the PC release, a second CD was provided which contained a construction set from Bethesda which gave access to a ton of tools to help players build and create whatever their imagination could come up with. Morrowind was well received upon launch and to this day is still considered the favourite to many Elder Scroll fans. It was the fourth best-selling Xbox game globally, having sold almost 3 million copies. I tried to find the PC release sale figures, but Bethesda tends not to announce those sales results. Two expansion titles were released not long after Morrowind, the first being Tribunal, which came out a few months later, and Blood Moon, which was released just a little over a year after Morrowind. Tribunal begins with an appearance of my favourite guild from Skyrim, the Dark Brotherhood. After the expansion is installed, the first time the player goes to sleep in-game they are attacked by a Dark Brotherhood assassin. The player then travels to the capital city of Morrowind, Mornhold, to find out more information about the guild. This leads to a number of side quests that ends with an attack on the capital city by a group of mechanical creatures thought to have been sent by Sothasil, one of three gods that make up the Tribunal. The Tribunal is a group of three gods that has ruled over Morrowind for thousands of years. By the end of the expansion, the player has learned that the second god on the Tribunal, Amalexia, was the one that ordered the attack on Morrowind and had killed Sothasil earlier on in the game in a power move to consolidate power over the Tribunal. After the player defeats Amalexia in battle, the only surviving member of the Tribunal is Vivek, who is no longer a god and is left as a mortal. The second expansion game, Blood Moon, adds an island off the coast of Morrowind, close to the Skyrim border called Solstheim. On this island, you participate in a sort of Hunger Games, hosted by the Daedric Prince, Hercene. The player battles three other warriors to the death, and then finally takes on an aspect of Hercene himself. This expansion is entirely self-contained, and the island would then later be used in a Skyrim expansion. Now before I move on to the final chapter of this breakdown, I suppose I should mention the mobile games that came out between Morrowind and the fourth Elder Scrolls. This was a trio of games called The Elder Scrolls Travels. Not much needs to be said really, the games were developed by another company, and the final game of the trio was made exclusively for the Engage. So, the less said the better. And this brings us to the final chapter of the episode, The Elder Scrolls IV Oblivion. The same crew from Morrowind is still around, with Todd Howard leading the charge again, with lead designer Ken Rolston and composer Jeremy Soule. 
Again, Bethesda initially stuck with Microsoft, releasing on both the PC and the Xbox 360 in 2006. As the hardware platforms became more powerful, Bethesda was able to add more features and improve the overall experience. Things like an improved AI, more realistic graphics, and to the chagrin of lead designer Ken Rolston, fully voiced dialogue. Bethesda went on to hire well-known actors such as Patrick Stewart, Linda Carter, and Sean Bean. In an interview, Ken Rolston had expressed his desire to maintain the partial voice dialogue utilized in Morrowind, but understood that times were changing. The story of Oblivion again focused on a single province in Tamriel, in this case, Cyrodiil. Set six years after the events of Morrowind, Oblivion begins with the Emperor Ural Septim VII, attempting to escape an assassination attempt by the Mythic Dawn cult. The Mythic Dawn had already killed three of the Emperor's sons in an effort to end the bloodline, and during the escape, the Emperor entrusts the player with the Amulet of Kings and the request that he take it to the Grand Master of the Blades. The king doesn't make it out and is killed by the cult. This destruction of the bloodline has allowed the gates to oblivion to come, become open, and before you know it, Daedra began invading Tamriel. As with all Elder Scroll games, there's a lot going on here again. Too much to discuss. But eventually the player discovers that the emperor had an illegitimate son who is living as a priest. The player also discovers that the mythic dawn are a cult dedicated to worshipping Maroon's Dagon the big bad from the Daggerfall expansion Battlespire. Eventually, the player manages to defeat the leader of the Mythic Dawn, only to find out that Dagon has made it to the Imperial City and has a large version of himself laying waste to it. The illegitimate son of the Emperor then destroys the Amulet of the Kings in order to merge himself with the spirit of Agatosh, the dragon god of time. Agatosh will then go on to defeat Dagon, which then closed the gates of Oblivion forever and leaving the player to live happily ever after. Again, this latest version of the Elder Scrolls won universal acclaim and sold a boatload of copies. It won a ton of awards again and continued to build on the legacy of the Elder Scrolls that came before it. A few notes for this version, Ken Rolston, who did such fine work designing Morrowind and Oblivion, had decided to retire after the completion of Oblivion. In his words, he planned to play the accordion a lot and wanted to sing in close harmony groups and wander around sponging off friends and having adventures. About a half year after Oblivion was released, Knights of the Nine was available, followed by a second expansion called Shivering Isles. So that brings us up to 2010, and the pending release of The Elder Scrolls V Skyrim. Unfortunately though, I'm going to end it here, as Skyrim holds a special place in my heart, and having been ported to the Switch only a few months ago, I think it deserves the full Thirsty Mage treatment where a group of friends sit down and discuss its history and the impact it had on them. Now I know that there's going to be a bunch of Elder Scrolls purists out there who, are going to, who may be upset that I kind of glossed over a lot of the details. What I was really trying to do with this episode was just kind of give you a rough background of the hist- a little bit of the history behind the designers, just a little bit of the timeline, and to give you a little bit of an idea of what led up to the latest release, Skyrim. The lore behind the Elder Scrolls series is very deep, and frankly just too much to talk about in the podcast. However, if you are looking for more information, or if you've become interested in the franchise after listening to this podcast, feel free to join me on Twitter or Reddit where I could provide you with links to some great wiki pages so that you can brush up on your Elder Scrolls lore. I want to thank everyone for listening tonight. And don't worry, these single-person episodes where you're forced to listen to my voice for an entire episode will be few and far between. 
Some future episodes of The Thirsty Mage you can look forward to, but in no particular order. It is a deep look into the Super Nintendo hit, and often considered best RPG ever made, Chrono Trigger. Their co-host Casey Gibson will be joining me with NWR owner Neil Ronahan. Also, f- some other future episodes. Casey and I are currently playing Nino Kuni 2 for the PS4. And on the Switch, Guillaume Vallette and myself are currently working through the indie RPG Earthlock. We'd love to hear from you as well. On Twitter, our account is at the Thirsty Mage. We also have a subreddit set up, and again, under the name The Thirsty Mage. On the subreddit, we'll have a listing of our episodes along with some great discussion about RPGs. I hate to ask, but it would be a real help to us if you could take a few minutes just to go and write a quick review on iTunes or Google Play. The reviews help expand our audience and allows us to grow the show and provide additional content. It's been a pleasure talking Bethesda with you tonight, and I'm really looking forward to our future episode about Skyrim. Thanks again for listening, and I hope to see you out again at the next Thirsty Mage.